You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open Scripture to the reading for this afternoon, which is also the text, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the Caribbean. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way we think about God determines to some extent what our relationship with Him is going to be like. You think about that for a minute. If we always regard God as being distant and far away, we'll never be living close to Him. But if we regularly think of God as our buddy, we'll never fully appreciate the scope of His holiness. One of the most beautiful, wonderful things about God as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word is that He is both far above us and close to us. And Scripture teaches us to keep those two things in balance. Theologians say that God is equally transcendent and imminent. And that's imminent spelled I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Practically speaking, God is and will always be great and, and holy. That's what it means that He's transcendent. But even though He's so high above us, He's so different, He continues to be intimately involved in every aspect, every detail of our lives. That's what we mean when we say that He is imminent. Not even a hair falls from our head without His will. Even the most mundane things of our lives fall under His sovereign power. He rules as a sovereign high king, but He also loves us deeply as a father. And He wants us to be self-consciously focused on seeing His work in our lives. He wants us to see His work, and He wants us to be constantly responding to His work in the right way. And Psalm 99 encourages us to do that very thing. As we read this psalm, as we reflect on it, 
We have to be constantly thinking about who our God is. Our thoughts have to be drawn upwards to Him. In this psalm, it's entirely about God. It gives us a picture of God as King. He is a King who is three times holy. He'll have absolutely nothing to do with sin. His holiness is stressed in verse 3, and then it comes in verse 5, and then finally again in verse 9. So He's the holy God, the holy King. But at the same time, He is a God who is deeply involved with His people. You can see from this psalm that God is both high above us and close to us, equally transcendent and imminent. And recognizing this is meant to draw a reaction from us. God says, this is who I am, and this is how I want you to respond. He gives us this revelation of who He is in order to call us to worship Him. And so I preach to you God's Word with this theme this afternoon. The great and holy King calls us to worship. And we'll look at three things. First of all, the subjects of the King. Second of all, the justice of the King. And then finally, the forgiveness of the King. First of all, the subjects. The psalm begins by telling us that Yahweh, the Lord, reigns. He's the King of the universe. And Psalm 99 comes in the context of several other psalms which also celebrate God's kingship. Both Psalm 98, which we sang a few moments ago, and and Psalm 100 connect God's kingship with the fact that He is also our Creator. He created everything in heaven and on earth, and so He has the right of ownership. He has the right to claim the title of King. He made everything and everything belongs to Him. It's His universe. Now in Psalm 99, this gets fleshed out with the thought that God is the King of all the nations of the earth. All peoples of the earth are called to worship Him. Find it right away in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. Then in verse 2, we're told that He is exalted over all the nations. So what should they do? Well, the answer is given in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He, or you could also translate that, it is holy. God is king over all the nations. And this has missionary significance. Since God is everybody's king, everybody is called to worship Him. And as Christ church today, we have the duty to continue to make this known to all the nations including our own. We have the obligation to say to all peoples everywhere, this is your Creator. This is your King. You're commanded to worship Him. And we have to make it clear that this is not optional. God does not extend an invitation for all nations to worship Him. God doesn't plead with the nations. God doesn't come down on His hands and knees and say, please, won't you worship me? No, brothers and sisters, what we find here and elsewhere in Scripture is a command. His royal majesty demands worship of all His subjects. 
And so that means that people might disobey, but they are not allowed to. And this especially holds true for those who are in a covenant relationship with this king. This psalm speaks of God as being the king of all nations, but there's a particular emphasis on his relationship to one people, to his covenant people. They're his subjects in a, in a special manner. And in Psalm 99, we, we find that reflected in a few different ways. First of all, something we already noted, we find God's covenant name used here. It's in verse 1. It's, it's used throughout the psalm. Everywhere you see Lord with all capital letters. Now in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. God's special personal name, His covenantal name. In verses 4 and 5, we find that God has done what is just and right with Jacob or Israel. And then the call goes out in verse 5 to the people of Israel, exalt or lift up Yahweh, worship at His footstool. Now, worshiping at His footstool, that's a special expression which refers to worshiping at the temple. And the temple, as you may remember, was the center of worship in the Old Testament, the center of covenantal worship. Then in verses 6 and 7, we hear about Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. They wouldn't have been household names among the Gentiles, but they certainly were among the Jews. We hear about God giving Moses, Aaron, and Samuel his covenant statutes and decrees. Verses 8 and 9 speak again about Israel, and once again, the call goes out to worship Yahweh at His holy mountain. Where is this holy mountain? Oh, it's Mount Zion, where the temple is, in Jerusalem. And from all of this, we see that our, our holy king has a special relationship with some of his subjects. And this covenant relationship makes it even weightier, that, that demand that we worship Him. We must worship Him because our King is so great and so holy. We must worship Him because He is so merciful to His subjects. He is holy, so different from us. But just because He is so different, just because He is so holy, that doesn't mean that He is inaccessible. Now, sometimes people will think that. People will look at God and say, well, I can't go to Him. He's too distant from me. God is so holy, and I am so unholy. Well, this psalm gives a, a corrective to that way of thinking. Look at verses 6 through 8. Moses Aaron and Samuel are mentioned there as men who, who were involved in intercessory prayer. And in passing, it's this intercession which allows Moses and Samuel to appear as priests in this psalm, even though technically they were not priests. But Moses and Samuel did act as priests in praying for the people. They could go to God. They could pray to Him. And... God answered them. Well, let's flesh this out and, and ask the question, why? Why did God answer them? 
You know, we have the good habit of praying in the name of the Lord Jesus. Most of the time when we pray, we, we tack on something at the end of our prayers whereby we, we claim to, to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus or for Jesus' sake or something to that effect. And so the thinking goes, God will hear us because we pray in Jesus' name. A good practice. But Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they didn't pray in the name of Christ. They knew the promises, but they didn't know the name of Jesus. So why then did God hear them? Well, it still had to do with Christ. It was because of the promises. It was an anticipation of what Christ would do. God heard their prayers because of what He promised His Son would do. He heard their prayers because of His covenant with His people. That covenant whereby He promised to crush the head of the serpent. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they were mere men. They didn't deserve to be heard by God. The story of their lives shows it over and over again. Yet these sinners could approach this holy king, bring to him their requests for themselves and for their people. And God answered them. And is it any different today? No. We have the same privilege. Though God is so highly exalted, we also have the privilege to approach God we can humbly bring Him our prayers, our intercessions, all because of what Christ has done for us, all because of Christ's fulfillment of all those beautiful covenant promises, because of His intercession. Like Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, the Lord Jesus steps in for us, and He makes it so that God will hear us. He bridges the gap between a weak and sinful people and His Holy Father. He makes it so that a people who are unholy in practice and thus unworthy of the King's grace become holy in principle and thus able to approach the throne of grace. And when we think about this, when we reflect on it, it has to humble us. We are the subjects of a great and holy king, yet he has concern for each one of us. Each one of us, without exception, can approach him with our concerns. With respect and humility, we can speak with him as we would our earthly fathers. And that should arouse in our hearts again that proper attitude for worship. Humility. We deserve nothing good from our holy king. But yet, He freely gives us so much. In fact, through Christ, He has promised to make us His sons and heirs. We will inherit His kingdom, brothers and sisters. What a great God! How can we not be stirred in our hearts to worship Him? How can we fail to respond to His call to fall before Him? And that becomes even more the case when we look at His justice and His forgiveness. Now let's look at His justice as we turn to our second point this afternoon. After calling all nations to worship the Holy and Great King, the psalmist speaks in verse 4 
of God's love for justice. It says there that He has established equity and that He has done what is just and right in Jacob or Israel. Further on in the psalm, in in verse 8, it says in in the NIV, though you punished their misdeeds. There is a little note at the bottom of the page as well. An alternate translation, an avenger of the wrongs done to them. That's an alternate translation. Another more literal translation from the Hebrew would read something like, but you took vengeance on their evil deeds. You see, there's an underlying current of God's justice in this psalm. And this fits together with the emphasis on God's holiness. Because being holy, being just, those two characteristics, they belong naturally together. Can you imagine someone being holy and not being just? Or being just and not being holy? God's character shows us these two attributes, justice and holiness, and and many others besides. He shows us these attributes exactly the way that they should be. Because God is holy, verse 4 can tell us that He loves justice. It's God's character to always do the right thing, to always steer clear from wrong. No one can ever point a finger at God and accuse Him of doing wrong. Nothing crooked in the way that God has dealt with the world in general, and then with His people in particular. He loves justice. And that's also shown in the giving of His law. We find that mentioned further on in verse 7. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept His statutes and the decrees He gave them. When God gave the law, that was good. He did righteousness and justice for Israel. He gave them a good thing. The law shows us God's justice and His righteousness because it shows us something of who God is. We can look at the law as being a positive thing also for today. The same has to be said for the vengeance that's spoken of in verse 8. Now today, we often look at vengeance as being negative. Even when it's God who brings vengeance, we tend to put it in the the black area, you could say, inside our heads. Vengeance is not a pretty thing. But in the Scriptures, it's portrayed differently. In the Old Testament, for instance, vengeance has to do with doing what is right, bringing a situation to justice. The covenant people during the time of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were notoriously sinful. Think of all their grumbling, all their complaining in the wilderness. During the time of Samuel, the people were worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreths. In all this disobedience, Israel brought themselves into debt with God. And that debt demanded repayment. As a reminder of that and also to discipline them, God gave out punishment for their wrongdoing. He was showing that sin has consequences. God was not going to wink at sin. God was never going to compromise His covenant. He was not going to stop being holy. That has to be seen as a a positive thing. As you think about it, would you be comforted knowing that God is fickle? 
Would you be comforted knowing that God's character could change at any moment just in a flash? Imagine that God is moody. Would you have joy knowing that God could compromise about anything He has ever said? God's justice has to be seen as especially positive in the light of the fuller revelation we have with the coming of our Lord Jesus. God's justice means that our sins will only be paid for once. Yahweh's vengeance for the wrongdoing of His covenant people was justly and fully met in our Lord Jesus. He took God's vengeance on His shoulders. took all our sin upon Himself. God's justice means that we who believe in Christ, we will never have to pay for our sins. God's justice means that our sins have been paid for in full. There are going to be no repeat payments. There's going to be no interest. Nothing. And as we consider the justice of this great and holy King, what should our response be? Look at what follows the consideration of His justice in verses 5 and 9. In both cases, the command is given, exalt or lift up Yahweh our God. Worship at the temple. God is just and so He demands your worship today and every day. There's no God like Him. If you ever read the Quran, the so-called holy book of Islam, you'll find that the Allah of Islam is nothing like Yahweh. The Allah of Islam is capricious and fickle. He doesn't know anything about covenant faithfulness the way Yahweh does. Yahweh alone is the King who is both great and holy, transcendent and imminent. And so He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone has the right to demand our worship. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. And as you hear about Him, as you're reminded of these things, we should have stirred up in us a desire, a passion to to tell others, to share this good news of who He is. I already mentioned how the the first verses of this psalm have missionary significance. Not being so, we should be thinking about how we can tell others this good news of who our God is, what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let me mention just one suggestion. Pray regularly to the Lord and ask Him to give you opportunities Ask Him to give you open doors to speak about your hope in Jesus Christ. To speak about who your great God is. You don't have to go out of your way to be a light and a witness where God has placed you. Ask God to work with His Spirit so that the opportunities will come to speak of spiritual things with people you encounter in your daily life, whether that's at work or school or on the bus or wherever it might be. Pray to the Lord to give you open doors. And of course, also ask Him to give you the strength to speak the truth with wisdom and winsomeness 
to speak the truth with love and compassion. Ask Him to help you so that when those opportunities come, you'll take them. When the door is open, you go through them. Ask to be an instrument in God's hands. And by doing that, you'll be taking a step towards calling all peoples to worship our great and holy King. Now we turn to consider the forgiveness of the King. It's part of God's character to do justice all the time. We can see in this psalm that it's also part of His character to forgive His people. This is made clear to us in verses 6-8. to Psalmist appears to be thinking of the the people of Israel and the, the many times that they fell into sin. Also times that they ran into sin. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel constantly had to make intercession for the people. They had to beg God not to destroy the people, but to have mercy. And when they did that, the result was that God did forgive the people. He did have mercy upon them. And God was able to do this without compromising His holiness. His justice was always there right alongside His forgiveness. And there is only one way that this was possible. It was possible for God to execute justice and mercy because of what His Son would do in His life and death on earth. God could only forgive the sins of His people in the Old Testament and still remain just only in anticipation of what our Savior would do. Perhaps I could ask you to open up your books of praise with me to Belgic Confession, Article 20. This morning we dealt with another of our confessional standards, the Canons of Dort. We also have the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the third one is our Belgic Confession. Belgic Confession, Article 20. You can find that on page 455. And in this article, we find the, the truth of Scripture on this point of God's justice and mercy. It's put so beautifully here. We believe that God who is perfectly merciful and just, sent His Son to assume that nature in which disobedience had been committed, to make satisfaction in that same nature, and to bear the punishment of sin by His most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested His justice against His Son when He laid our iniquity on Him and poured out His goodness and mercy on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation. Out of a most perfect love, He gave His Son to die for us, and He raised Him for our justification, that through Him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. The justice, the mercy of God in Psalm 99 points us straight to Christ. God forgives sin but never without compromising apart from His justice. He never compromises His justice. And that's only possible because of the cross. And therefore, we're called to worship our holy King for what He did in sending His Son, our Lord Jesus. We're called to worship because of His forgiveness. 
Because of that forgiveness, we can have a close relationship with our Holy King. There are no more walls between us and Him. In the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Aslan did not have to be introduced to Edmund, Peter, Susan, and Lucy. From the start, I don't know how many of you noticed that, but from the start, the king of Narnia knew each of them personally. He knew their names. He cared for their personal welfare. In the end, Aslan was even willing to die, and he did die for Edmund's treason. Now you might say that's just a story, but we know that C.S. Lewis intended it to introduce us to deeper realities. The truth is, the heavenly king is a lot like Aslan. Your heavenly king cares about your personal welfare. He knows your name. He cares about you when you're in the hospital or when you're depressed. He cares when there's been a death in your family or when somebody is dying. He cares about your struggles and your temptations. And He not only knows you and cares for you personally and individually, He also actively works everything in your life for good. Because of His forgiveness in His Son, He has come close to you. He loves you and cares for you. Intimately involved with your life, He's there for you. Now the call, the command comes to you to live close to Him by His power. Remember, we have all things by His grace. That includes the obedience to, to this call to worship. By His power, you have to worship. Now, what does that mean? What is this worship going to look like? Up till now, we've taken it for granted that we know what it means to worship. Well, let's, let's think about it a little bit more. Naturally, this psalm points us to the corporate worship of the people of God. When God's people come together as a group in church. If you've been redeemed by this great and holy king, how can you fail to, to meet with his other subjects to worship him corporately? There is a calling here to gather together as God's people, just like the Old Testament people would gather at the temple. I'm going to get back to, to that point more in, in just a minute. But for now, I want to note that there's more. Because the Old Testament temple does not directly parallel the church of today. In the New Testament we find that the temple is now where the Holy Spirit lives. He lives in each of us, in our bodies, in who we are. We are now the temples of God. These bodies that we have are to be characterized by worship. Paul makes the point in Romans 12, verse 1. Great passage to memorize. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of what Christ has done, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But Paul speaks here of our bodies as sacrifices instead of as, as temples. Yet the point is made. These bodies, indeed our whole life, is to be characterized by worship or service to God. That service is part of our thankfulness to God for what He has given us in Christ. That's why it says, in view of God's mercy in Romans 12.1. And this worship or this service of thanksgiving has to be wholehearted. We can't be part-time worshipers of idols following the lusts of our flesh. Even though the truth is, we often are. We have to make a sincere effort to turn away from our idols. We all have them, myself included. Turn away from those idols. Turn to the true, the living God, the great and holy King who cares for you. We have to give our whole life to Him. And having said that, that we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit today, the New Testament also teaches us that we are collectively, as a church, as the Canadian Reformed Church of Langley, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says it in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? And when this passage speaks of you, it's you in the plural. Don't you know that you, plural, are God's temple? Not temples, temple, singular. So, looking back to, to Psalm 99, when it tells us as New Testament believers to worship at His holy mountain, to worship at the temple, there's also a calling for us to gather together. There's also a call to corporate worship as a church. In other words, brothers and sisters, attending the worship services is not optional. When the consistory calls the congregation to worship twice, the Lord wants us to be here. He commands us to be here. And of course, like we've heard before, there can be valid reasons why you cannot be here twice. But as a rule, we should make it our practice and our highest priority to worship twice with God's people each Lord's Day. You think about it. What goes on here? What we experience here, the fellowship we have here, the praise we have here, and so on. All of this is a glorious foretaste of what it's going to be like to spend eternity in God's presence with all the redeemed of God. And if you disdain corporate worship on this old earth, well, guess what? You're going to hate it in the new heavens and new earth. When we strive to worship individually as temples of the Holy Spirit, corporately as a temple of the Holy Spirit, again, we'll be pointing others to our great and to our holy King. We'll show the world around us what it means to live in relationship with this God, to live with Him 
as his subjects. As we make a a more diligent effort every day to, to live a consistent Christian life, greater glory and honor gets brought to our King. Along the way, we'll slip and and fall. There are struggles. There are hardships. And sometimes in our struggles with sin, sometimes it seems that, that sin really has the chain around our neck. And sometimes it feels like it's getting tighter. And more often than we care to admit, we're some kind of spiritual sadomasochist. We actually like it that way. Yet we know that our God reigns. And He is both just and forgiving. When we seek Him in true repentance, He will forgive us because of Christ. His justice and mercy have come together in Christ. And for that reason alone, He cares for us deeply as a father does. We must look to Christ and then we will know that our King is intimately involved with us and what's happening in our lives everything, even down to the most mundane details. And as we think about that, we become more worshipful. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are to be full of worship for our great and holy King from now until the day when Christ returns in glory. Then we shall reign together with Him forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.